listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, joined today by new friend of the show, Sally Best. Sally is the host of the Conspiracy Crushers Podcast. Uh, Sally, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's a bit cold over here in England, a uh, bit of snow outside, but coping, you know? Sure, yeah, yeah. It's, um, oh my goodness, so it's it's interesting. We're We just got like six inches of snow last night here in Boston and it's just, it's just adding to the piles upon piles of snow. And in the place where I live now, we have kind of like a little outdoor garden area and that garden area is becoming like a wall of snow that you just have to kind of walk through as it piles up on the sides of you. And you were just shoveling out a pathway. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty, it's pretty great. It's like, I don't know. It's kind of a cool, I don't know, a fantasy setting for getting out in the day. Um, Sally, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of background on sort of your your degree, your background in this field, and what made you want to get involved in the world of, you know, looking at conspiracy theories? Um, okay, so I've got a biology background. I did a degree in environmental biology um, over here in England at the University of Nottingham. Um, I spent my degree kind of doing um, a lot of environmental stuff. I did my human physiology and things. Um, but my thesis was based on, um, on working in Mexico um, and volunteering for a project called Operation Wallacea to try and work out um, remediation strategies to prevent declining populations of uh, green turtles. Um, and I worked with them um for pretty much i'm gonna say eight months um on implementations and research so i I went over and i i did the initial research and then came back and we collabed and things and um all the research goes to the mexican government um and it basically informs policy and the way that they introduce things um so yeah i had that that kind of climate um background as as well as a general biology background um and i started once i graduated in 2019 i started writing about um climate issues um such as you know coral reef restoration um very interested in um in ocean wildlife um and then i went i continued writing and i started a journalism diploma last year um, now, when I started that, it was kind of the height of COVID. Um, so everything was a bit crazy in, in the journalism scene. And I wanted to go in as a scientific journalist with a specialist, which um, is slightly niche, I'm going to say. Um, I didn't really know any of the scientific journalists that were wanting to go into what I wanted to do and write about these things. Mm-hmm. And basically, when I started, um, I was seeing a lack of coherence between the media and um, and scientists that were releasing, um, you know, peer-reviewed um, peer-reviewed science publications on coronavirus and what they'd found, and there was a lot of um, lack of cohesion of politicians as well. Um, quoting the science has changed when science doesn't change, as we know, evidence available changes. But yeah, I was just seeing this complete lack of cohesion and it was really getting to me. And then also I was seeing the rise of conspiracy theories and fake news just grow 
in ridiculous quantities on Facebook, social media, Twitter, and it was really getting to me. And I would read through the comments and just become slightly enraged at, at some of the things that were one being reported on, two that people were taking on board and commenting on, and three that places like Facebook and Twitter were letting exist and actually being a conduit for propagation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it was really getting to me. So I basically, um, my dad's also a scientist. Um, he was a physiologist, 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 sorry, in um, biochemist, uh, biochemistry and um, diabetes research. And um, I basically would kind of have conversations with him about it and came up with the idea of creating a podcast that went back to the root of conspiracy and say confirmation bias, um, the social echo echo chamber effect, Um, and identified and pinpointed why conspiracy exists, how it's propagated, and how to debunk some of these theories with hard cold scientific facts, if that makes sense. Oh, it absolutely makes sense. I'm, you know, it's funny. I'm, I am always so excited when another show comes out and, and just another person comes out and says, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in these subjects. I'm interested in, I'm interested in these in a serious way, you know, because that's really your same, the same things that you're talking about, that same distinction, or I guess the, the disparity between what a scientific article says or what a scientist reports on and then what actually makes its way out there to the world through science journalism or through not even science journalism, but just regular journalism is was such a huge concern for me um, when I was in grad school and when I was an undergrad even and thinking about these problems. And then it just gets, like you said, it just gets exacerbated. It just gets worse when people are kind of siloed into these echo chambers of social media where again, you know, it's no one is giving any sort of fact checking. No one is even attempting to think critically about these things. You just share, you just share over and over again, what, what you think that makes sense to you or what you think makes sense to those around you. And it just ends up where, you know, suddenly you're talking about how, you know, this new, uh, the new, the new COVID vaccine is, Bill Gates putting a tracking chip inside of you. It's it's a really easy slope for people to fall down into. And it's one that I don't really think we've ever. I don't think that we've ever as, a, as societies really given enough credence to how problematic. And how dangerous that process can be. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also kind of not not criticizing um well kind of criticizing um you know people that are writing about things that are unqualified um and i'm not trying to come from a high horse position but to know how to write about these things you have to have had experience of reading scientific papers because number one they are lengthy and you've got to know where to start You've got to know what the statistical analysis means. You've got to know what the output is. And 
And as a whole, being able to read that, digest it, and then reproduce it, it's a really difficult occupation that you've got to tackle. And unless you've had experience in that field, I don't necessarily think there's there's the positivity in in writing about it and putting articles out there. Like for me, I you know I know a bit about say British politics. I know a bit about American politics. Would I ever write about them? Absolutely not, because I don't feel like I have the basis on which to write about them. And it's the danger in journalism that this new, not new field is emerging, but this field of scientific journalism is emerging. But it's an uncharted territory whereby people aren't necessarily qualified that are writing about it and they don't have that, you know, precedent and experience to do so in a way that they would in politics or mm-hmm. foreign affairs, you know? Well, I think part, yeah, I think part of the issue, and it's interesting because I think from, you know, our shows cover pretty similar, I think kind of, uh, we have similar goals with our shows and we have similar kind of background theories as to what the old, you know, what we want to get out of these shows or what we want to get out of our own communication in these ways is both, pick apart and find how those conspiracy theories spread, but also think of ways that we can really successfully uh, or not even necessarily successfully, because I don't know if convincing people is even possible in some cases, but at least meaningfully engaging with people, you know, that, that I think that is really the challenge that science has had, especially. And it's, it's sort of a self-inflicted wound in some ways, but I guess one thing that I think will be really fascinating and I, I really, I really, really push listeners of this show to go and listen to the Conspiracy Crushers show is your perspective on it coming from um, coming from the UK versus a here in America. You know, it's interesting. Did you so recently, actually, there was a podcast that came out that did it looked at a um, it looked at a topic that actually was my first I guess my first foray into this topic uh, of conspiracy theory and science interacting really, really interestingly, which was the uh, switch over from wood burning stoves to coal burning stoves in the United Kingdom versus in America. Have you ever looked at any of that? No, I haven't. I've read an article really recently, actually, um, that was about um, wood burners emitting toxic fumes, but I I haven't looked into um into the actual topic. So I need, I, I want to say it was, oh my goodness, I have to find it now. Um, it was a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting problem. It's a really interesting question. And so when I, when I find it, listeners, I will put it in the show notes here. Um, but, but anyways, and I want to say it was like, a, it was a really big, I want to say that it was like a big, uh, a big podcast, a big science podcast that put it out there too. So I'm kind of like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm blanking on this name right now. But anyways, um, what the, what, what's interesting is so in the United States, coal for a long time was viewed really, really negatively. And obviously that's not the case anymore. We kind of switched over to like loving coal, but even in the United States today, still, a, a, a non-insignificant portion of, of heating comes from burning of wood. Um, it's not actually coal burning anymore. It's, it's wood burning or not, you know, petrochem or, or whatever. And 
but Europe and specifically the United Kingdom, where this conversation is really usually based because the UK and, and America are so common or, or so commonly um, viewed as being kind of, you know, sister countries that um, in the UK, they, sh they shifted to coal much more readily than they did in the United States. I, I don't even think it was the whole UK either. I'm trying to think it might, this might have just focused on like Britain, but anyways, they, the reason that they shifted over to coal more readily than the United States did was because we just had more trees, you know, in the 1800s um, at the turn of like the industrial revolution, we had still huge swaths of trees that were not cut down yet, but, but Europe and uh, you know, the UK didn't anymore. And so the shift to coal was, was eased in that region, but in the United States, it lagged behind something like a hundred, you know, like a hundred years that we really switched over to burning coal as the major source of fuel. And in the United States versus say the UK, we still see things like that happen where the, you know, as much as similar as our, I mean, obviously we speak the same language, but our cultures are in very, are very in many ways similar that they kind of come from the same initial um, starting point, right? We're, the founders of this country are mostly immigrants from the UK. Um, and even I think Australia, to some extent, I'd be interested to see that comparison too. But the way that technology is accepted in these regions is really fascinating and how different it can be. But I'd also argue, and I'd also be really interested in seeing how conspiracy theories are accepted or propagated in these areas um, compared to each other. Because I, I would argue, I would wager or expect that a lot of the technological, a lot of the economic, social, political um, reasons that technologies either are accepted more readily or are not accepted more readily also will play a role in conspiracy theories. Although maybe in ways we don't expect since conspiracy theories are so often not based on any kind of um, truth. Yeah. Anyways, that was like a super long tangent. Um, <laughs> no, but, so I guess, I guess, so one question I really, one question I have that I think is, is, is a really interesting case of this is, um, so in the United States, we've always had a culture where basically everyone's opinion on everything is viewed as equally valid, much to our own detriment, I would argue in some cases. <laughs> so like the United States, um, a, a good example of this is religion in the United States. Our founding mythology is that people came over here because they wanted to practice religion away from the control of the Pope or the state or whatever, you know, and of course the, we came, people came over here, the pilgrims or, you know, the Plymouth colonists came over specifically to practice a stultifying, um, super, super strict form of Christianity. Uh, but the argument or the idea I think has always been that people can come here and believe what they want. Do you feel like that same kind of viewpoint exists even in the UK? Um, so I think in terms of religion, it's a, it's a very different kettle of fish here in some ways in terms of believing you know, believing what what you want and everybody having this um, this kind of same value of opinion. I think, you know, 
people are allowed to have the same level of opinion and given the same credit irrespective mm. of their qualifications so we talked about this in my first episode actually and this this kind of idea that um you know everyone's opinion is valid mm. and i think um so my first guest used this really really great example that was you know if you're if you're not going to trust people so if you wouldn't trust anybody other than a doctor with medical health if you wouldn't trust anybody other than a dentist with dental health um if you wouldn't trust anybody other than an environmental environmentalist with environmental health why on earth would you trust people other than science journalists with science journalism if that mm -hmm. makes sense um and you get this propagation and people commenting on things that they you know they've read things they feel entitled and informed and like they've they've got a grasp of what they know is going on and i think the main thing is there's platforms for these people to exist which is why they exist which is you know facebook social media you've got comment sections everyone has their comments open um there's always this propensity and this you know people can exist in this way um in terms of religion i just i think it's a it is very different over here i think it's very divided in in the way that um religions are and and although we're mainly a church of england country um you know we've got immigrants from all over the world which i think is um is is lovely but as you know there's always clashes and things um but no i, I yeah i think in, in response to that I, I don't know if it's necessarily the same um entitled everybody has i don't really know what i'm trying to say here well yeah well yeah so i get i guess like like i i was actually before this scouring my brain in my mind the perfect example of this kind of ideal going off the rails in the United States, at least is our culture of cults. Like we have a tremendous number of cult belief systems in the United States, you know, from like Scientology to, um, you know, pastors in like Louisiana holding church services, holding rattlesnakes or whatever. You know what I mean? Like we, we have a really strong history of, kind of religious con men creating communes around themselves. And then, and people just sort of being like, well, those are the, you know, those are the wacky people down the hill who believe that, you know, John is a alien overlord, <laughs> but I, I don't think that really exists or it may, and maybe I'm just not well versed in it, but I don't really think that exists in say, um, it doesn't exist in the same way in other countries. You know, you have cults, you have cults in like, say, Japan and but they all have their own kind of brand, right? Like Japanese cults tend to be very like, you know, I don't know. It's like you can you can tell on paper like this is probably a cult that's from Japan because the social structures within the cult are a certain way. Whereas in the U.S., it's always like some, you know, it's they're, they're just random. They're all over the place. And they can be anything. Yeah, I mean, I think. Personally, I'd always credit that to the size of America mm. and the states and the division. And, you know, it's such a large area. And I always find it weird with, you know, politics and things that you have one president. Um, oh, it's but, wacky. Yeah, it's crazy. 
Um, and you've got so many states, massive populations. And to be able to have cohesion between even, you know, one state, let alone 50 of them, it's crazy. I just, that would, that would be where I'd think the divides would come in, that you, you know, there isn't, there isn't this kind of unity as it were, because there are so many different areas and, and so many different cultures that are amalgamating in really weird ways. I'd say in England uh, and Great Britain, United Kingdom, our population is a lot smaller. Mm. The area that we're over is a lot smaller. Um, our cultures kind of, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't vary from one end to the other. Whereas in America, you, you know, the culture's just divided across so many different states. You know, it's, it's interesting, actually. I think you're really onto something with that. The more I sort of ponder it in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, really the most successful cults and in some ways the most successful conspiracy theories in the United States exist because they are first off they're not really headquartered anywhere they, or, or if they are they kind of move between states so there's not you know it's it's it is bringing an amalgamation of people together i guess maybe the better example or maybe the better comparison that isn't really comparison compare it maybe the better example isn't comparing our problems with conspiracy theory to you know, the UK, let's say, but maybe more to to just Europe, right? Or, you know, but but that's, again, it's kind of, we're a weird case because we all speak the same language basically except for like, you know, downtown Boston and like Louisiana. <laughs> it's, but yeah, it's an, it's an interesting thing. Um, all right, well, with that, we're going to go into our first break. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. So, Sally, I want to get into some fun stuff here. And I mean, of course, you know, conspiracy theories are um, it's interesting. We hear a lot from people online. Oh, you know, you take this too seriously. Conspiracy theories should be fun and everything else. And it's like, yeah, they're fun until, you know, your country is almost taken over by a, a nutcase. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> uh, it's a little fun until there's a coup attempt. But what is your what? what what is the craziest conspiracy theory that you would say has a, you know, a sizable portion of belief in the, in the UK? Sizable portion of belief. Or just like, what's a, what's a popular, I guess, because I'm thinking again, our craziest conspiracy theory is like that Hillary Clinton drinks baby blood right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we, and so maybe it is just the U.S. takes everything up to 11. So our crazy conspiracy theory is the craziest. But I'm, again, I'm wondering, what is your what is the craziest conspiracy theory you I guess you've heard of existing um, in your region? I think um, we get a lot of like crop circle things. I've okay. kind of experienced, which I just I don't know how to engage. Um, the, <laughs> the weirdest ones 
oh, so it was really, <laughs> it was kind of fair enough. Um, there was this conspiracy theory that our government was made up of lizards and they're not actually humans. Oh yeah, David Icke. Yeah, you guys have David Icke. Yep. <laughs> Which is just um, absolutely absurd. Obviously the moon landings and things like being fake. Um, I'm trying to think of some more interesting ones that aren't massively detrimental. <laughs> That's, it's so hard. It's so hard. Like if, it, you know, I think like a couple of years ago, if you had asked me, what's a conspiracy theory you think is fun that isn't really detrimental to things, I'd have like a list of a couple of them. But in, in the modern world where you're thinking again, just how easy it is to go from, like you said, the moon landing is fake to, you know, oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, Tony Blair was actually a lizard person. That <laughs> that change is it's not it's it's not as far a leap as I think we once thought it was. And so they all look they all look dangerous. None of them appear benign anymore. Yeah, no, I it it just does really kind of venture into really scary territory. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm really trying to rack my brain for other ones that I found amusing. I think most of the time I'm absolutely petrified by them in all seriousness. Mm-hmm. Other than the lizard one, I just, I feel fair enough. You know, I, I could even get on board with that. <laughs> just because of the behavior of some of our government, obviously not just a disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me on that. But yeah, that, that there's some, um, I, like in our, first episode as well we kind of broke down into um uh you know benign conspiracy and really dangerous conspiracy um and yeah our benign were you know the lizards and the moon landing um i'm really trying to think of other ones i think even this weird 4g mast thing it's Mm. it's hysterical It's, it's not benign but it's hysterical because I don't understand what people thought came before that. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. That right, right. Well, so that is, yeah. I don't know the mask, the conspiracies that we're seeing with masks. You know, in the U.S., our flavor of those conspiracies are always the government is trying to. In the U.S., we have a real like fetish for the idea that the government is coming to like control us all. Like ever, like I, there's some portion of of the American populace that would, I think, love to be right about living in 1984. You know, they're just they're waiting for the day that the government's like, you know, you can't. Ah, uh, you're. <laughs> they're just waiting. They're waiting for the day to be like, I told you, I told you, we were gonna all go to the reeducation centers. But yeah, there. It's just. The mass, so the mass thing has that. That's really what it's become here. Is the government is trying to control you? They're using the vaccine to distribute a microchip that'll make uh, allow the government to control you. Like it's always that same central belief, right? The government wants to control you, and it's like, I, I mean, kind of. That's like what governments are made to do is to control the populace and protect you from the the whims of other people, but. You know, that's that's kind of a benefit of government in some cases. <laughs> it's not always super evil. Uh, you know, it's not always the worst thing ever. Yeah, I th- well, I think especially like with us and, um, you know, our, 
government has a political mandate and for um, our population to be given the vote on Brexit mm-hmm. was an absolute catastrophe. I mean, irrespective of the way that it went or not, I know which way I'm inclined, but these people are informed to make decisions about, um, you know, political um, repercussions and, and I don't know, populations need this kind of higher power to make informed decisions that they don't know about. And mm-hmm. it's, I think the distance between people and the government is sometimes used as this, um, this weird territory in which they think there are things going on that, that they don't know about. Um, but I think giving people control on the other end of the scale can also lead to destruction as well. You know, we, we live in a democracy, um, but democracy to an extent that we trust our leaders in making decisions for us. That's what we vote them in for, to make decisions. We don't vote them in so they give us decisions, if that makes sense. Mm. I just, it's a, it's a really weird, really weird one. It's an interesting, I think it is really an interesting, I do think it's a really interesting, again, an interesting difference in culture because I would, I, although I think that's, that is logically what most Americans should see their politicians doing. I don't think that's what we think of politicians as doing. I don't, I don't think most Americans trust their politicians to make good decisions for them. I think a a good portion of Americans would think that they themselves could do better than the politicians that, um, that most, that, that frankly there, you know, we have an entire, I mean, I know like you guys have your, you have the liberals and conservatives as well, but our conservatives and not even all just conservatives, but there's a large portion of the population that I, think believes, or I know believes, not that I think I know believes based on statistics and and surveying that there, there frankly shouldn't be a government that they don't need government. They don't need somebody making these decisions for them. Um, And it's part of, it is part of, I think the larger, again, history of America that we've always felt that way that, you know, we don't need someone from someplace else or someone from a different background, deciding for me what's best for me and my family. I can do that myself. But in the modern day, it's become magnified where, again, kind of political parties are utilizing, um, are utilizing, you know, grievance and racial disparities and uh, fear about change and everything else to, again, make, they're using that as a weapon here where they're saying, these people who look differently than you, than, that act differently than you, that have different uh, backgrounds than you, they want to decide for you and you can't trust them. And that has been a wildly successful. And I think it's, it's similar again to what was part of the Brexit campaign, right? Was that same argument, you know, you're, we're going to let Europeans decide for us. That's been a really effective message here in America. And it's, I don't think it's any, uh, I don't think it's any, I don't think it's really any surprise that the same forces in America that were pushing that narrative and have been so successfully started working with the forces in, in the UK that decided to start pushing the Brexit storyline. So yeah, 
it's it's really interesting though the the way that it plays differently I think or or how to change that message around but again uh, as with all conspiracy theories it's ultimately the same story you're just changing the window dressing in some way yeah yeah definitely so what I guess one thing that we've heard in the one thing that I think is taken for granted is being true here is that in the United States the assassination of JFK um, which that happened in like the 1960s uh, towards the end of the 60s to the 70s that the assassination of JFK and the re- and the related kind of political turmoil created the modern day conspiracy theory um, culture that we have in the United States right and, and excuse me it happened in 63 in Texas Dallas Texas of course and then um the fallout from that kind of occurred up until say the seventies. Um, but we're still feeling it today in some ways, but, but like you said, there are conspiracy theories that are growing and thriving in, in the UK and in other countries too. Is is there a central moment or is there, I guess, sort of a, a period of time that you think conspiracy theories were really successful in growing in the UK? Um, so we've kind of talked about this on our episode as well, um, and origin. Um, it's really hard to document. I think in terms of, um, vaccine conspiracy, there was definitely the, um, the event in the nineties, which was, um, Andrew Wakefield's research Mm -hmm. on, um, on the MMR vaccine, measles, rubella, um, and he basically um, s- basically said that it caused autism in recipients. And um, as I've said, he's been completely thrown out. Um, his research has been completely thrown out um, and deemed null and void. But I think even, so what am I? I'm nearly 23 now. And even when I was receiving my measles, rubella vaccine, there was this air of caution. A lot of people weren't vaccinating their children. I personally received three separate doses, them in three separate doses, um, which was advised by a doctor at the hospital that I was vaccinated at because um, receiving the full dose didn't seem kind of entirely safe, which it completely is, but it didn't seem safe at that time. Um, Now, I know parents of friends who still believe that 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 research was um, valid and that it could cause autism in recipients. Um, I know people that haven't had that vaccine. Um, And I know people that are now have latched on to that scare and apply it to other vaccines and refuse to get vaccinated in a lot of ways. Um, So I think that was a really, really key conspiracy in terms of the scientific um, community um, that, that enabled this propagation of, of future doubt. And the thing is with doubt, once it's there, it never, ever goes because it's always this kind of tinkering, lingering um, feeling. And it's really, really difficult to, um, to actually discredit a scientist um with with evidence it's really difficult so 
yeah to answer i i think that that would be you know the major point for um immunology conspiracy theories i can't speak on behalf of um you know more other conspiracy theories that sure sure that aren't so scientific um it, but i'd also argue as well that um when did facebook come in 2003 was it something like that yeah i'd say that had a massive massive effect um on the way that that you know things are publicized really hmm. so one thing that's really interesting so in the u.s there are um, so the U.S. we had we've had I guess a lot of medical scandals that have also led to people in specific communities being really careful and I think I've heard people call it resistant to vaccination, but I think that's probably incorrect because resistant sort of suggests that there's not a good reason. I think cautious is probably a, maybe a better word for it. But so for example, in the United States. Um, we had, um, we had uh, what was called the Tuskegee uh, syphilis study, where in the third from the thirties until like really a super long time from like the thirties to the seventies, um, the uh, the government of the United States basically studied how syphilis affected uh, people and didn't and didn't affect people, and so they basically just did all this. Uh, Basically, were they they pretended to be uh, treating people for syphilis, but were in fact trying to observe the effects of untreated syphilis, and this happened on on black males specifically in the United States, and so that sort of history has led people to really be uh, much more cautious in those communities to do anything the government tells them to do with regards to health, and some you know some public health methods have been developed to really help fix that. But I guess I wonder, like, I'm thinking in the UK, I know you had, like, say, like, thalidomide, right? That was a huge scandal. I, I don't think it ended up actually affecting that many people. It was, like, in the thousands, I want to say. But I know that there are still people today surviving with the birth defects caused by thalidomide. Do you has that ever really been explored, I guess? Or do you think that has any place to play here? Or was it, like, I guess I'm wondering... Could scandals like, say, the thalidomide scandal um, cause people to be more, again, cautious against that? Or have you never really even heard that as an argument? It's more the kind of conspiracy theory stuff we hear of normally, say, like here, you know, just everywhere. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point with thalidomide. Um, and the thing about that is obviously it took nine months for any signs to show up mm -hmm. um, because you know, mothers were given it for morning sickness and then mm -hmm. they had their gestational period and then gave birth. And it was only then that ramifications were truly understood. Whereas in other trials of other natures, um, there isn't, there isn't the same kind of longevity mm. and it wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be trialed on women with, with child. Um, so I do think it's, it's a really good point. Um, and even so far as to say, I think they've tried to rebrand thalidomide um, in other ways of, I think that was like cancer treat treatment. Yeah, it's 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 still it is still used for some things, but it's like you know, it's a pretty big uh, 
that's a pretty big PR night. I mean, <laughs> like, I can't believe they tried to rebrand it at all or that it's been successful. But but anyways, continue. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It is. It's tricky. But I think once people have these, um, you know, doubts and and it it was a mistake. And I, I I'd hope that the way that they trial um, drugs in that way has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things even with this vaccine that scares a lot of people is the fact that it's come about so quickly. Um, And um, I think the main thing to emphasize is that this vaccine has gone through all of the required trials um, and clinical trials that it should do. And one of the reasons that it's come about so quickly is because of um, a lot of knowledge on coronaviruses as a group. As right. opposed to, um, you know, it's a novel coronavirus, but coronavirus isn't novel to um, to scientists. You know, there's a lot of documentation on it, um, a lot of genetic sequencing that's already been done. Um, but yeah, I think that there is this this fear of um, things that haven't been trialed before, um, things that are novel, um, and I. I I think a lot of people would want to wait a certain period before they knew effects and things. Um, and just this lack of trust. And I think um, instances such as the thalidomide instance will plant a seed of doubt in people's minds. Um, but I think comparably, um, you know, with this virus, um, vaccine, sorry, we put a hell of a lot of crap into our bodies every day that we wouldn't think twice about. You know, I think in England, there's especially this, um, we're, we're quite kind of not dependent on alcohol, but it's very much a social, um, it's there for kind of social events and and our culture is very much founded on, you know, going to the pub, watching the football sure. while at the pub, drinking, going to nightclubs and things. Um, and, the you know, there's clear evidence that, alcohol is really, really blooming damaging for loads of internal organs in your body and can cause various cancers and things. But people drinking alcohol, you wouldn't think twice about those ramifications, even though there's, you know, tons of evidence on it. But when it comes to a vaccine, there's this hesitation and it's that sort of thing that that really worries me, but also confuses me because you know, there's things that you just wouldn't consider about causing harm that you know cause harm. But as soon as there's something that's been peer reviewed, has gone through a series of clinical trials, people are hesitant. Um, and yeah, I guess there's, it's just one of those things you've, you've got to increase um, the connectivity of, of scientists and the media and communicate the safety and efficacy of these things, really. Yeah, it's it's it is a funny it's become one of my favorite, I guess, sort of jokes or memes that's come out from this period is people saying, you know, if you if you smoke a 12 pack a day of cigarettes, I don't want to hear you say that you're worried about what the vaccine will do to you. Yeah. You know, like there's you don't you do not care about what you put in your body. It's it's, you know, um, but it is it is. Yeah, no, it's an interesting it's part of me wonders if it is not just how relatively rare people who know about the sciences, who know about things like say peer review, or even, you know, even in this case, say like, if we just think generally, 
you know, how many, like I've gone to, you know, we've gone to conferences to talk about our show and talk about conspiracy theories and even gone to, um, conferences specifically, uh, you know, promoting, uh, you're not really promoting, but, you know, full of people who believe conspiracy theories and, um, and talking to them and having them say, you know, you're the first scientist I've ever met in my entire life. That's a problem. You know, we're like people who have higher degrees or who even just study the sciences in school. They're relatively rare. They tend to cluster in, in certain parts of the country. Like I know in the United States, at least it's basically, you know, your chances of meeting someone with a higher level degree, um, you know, obviously they, it increases drastically the closer you get to a university, but most people don't live near universities. Um, you know, so it's, it is, I think part of the problem is there's not enough communication. There's just not enough kind of interesting media that people can consume. And it's frankly why I'm so excited you're doing your show. I'm really, I'm really happy to have another, um, I'm, I'm so happy always to see, uh, shows come out that I think are are having this kind of mindset, talking about this stuff seriously, and really trying to get to the bottom of it. So I'm I'm just so excited. Uh, I'm so thankful you decided to come on the show here today with us. Um, any anything you want the listener, anything you want listeners to know, where can they find you? Um, so we're on Podbeans at the minute, hoping to get a few more episodes out and get onto um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So we're okay. The conspiracy crushes and um yeah i think with with science conspiracies um debunking um and hoping to just kind of go through a journey a logical journey of you know moving through so we're starting our next one on vaccine conspiracy and then hoping to go more into coronavirus vaccine conspiracy and then on to coronavirus conspiracies um so you know a bit of natural progression but if people want um have you know, theories that they'd kind of like us to discuss and attempt to debunk, um, look into a bit of research, you know, um, that's, that's what we're hoping to do. Um, just a lot of research on these things. It's, um, I think that one of the common misconceptions as well is that this is all, you know, off the top of the head and things and planning for podcast episodes are actually, it takes a while in terms of searching up these things and coming up with clear, coherent arguments and evidence. Oh my God. It's people who come over to our apartment. Not that that's happened since like COVID has gone on, but you know what I mean? Like people that come over for the first time and see our bookshelves, like we have normal books and then we have things like, you know, Hitler's on the moon still, right? Like, it's like, Oh my God. No, I'm I'm researching. I swear I'm just researching. I don't believe that crazy thing. Oh, yeah. You know, it takes such a it takes a long time and it's it really is it's a it's a oh god, it just is a labor of love until it happens. Yeah, and you get down a easier. rabbit hole as well. You you really stumble down rabbit holes. And I think especially in um loads and loads of different places, there's there's different conspiracy theories. Like I that I think I'd know just a slight bit about um, series in England um, but then as you move to kind of Europe even America African countries there's just you know so many different rabbit holes that you delve down that you didn't know existed and you get a bit lost <laughs> absolutely yeah no it's it's easy to come out of that uh, 
easy to come out of the internet hole like what is happening yeah. well uh well sally best thank you so much for coming on folks the show is called the conspiracy crushers it is a new podcast check it out please it's available on podbean um once it's available on spotify and apple Podcasts, we will promote the heck out of it on twitter for you all and on facebook and things and please check the show notes too we'll have links there uh sally thanks again so much for coming on the show thank you bye-bye Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. On a hot summer night in 1988, Jane Borowski was stabbed 27 times by an unknown man. She was seven months pregnant. My name is Jane Borowski. I survived and I remember everything. Jane is the lone survivor of a serial killer. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell, and this is Dark Valley. Join us in our search for America's unknown serial killer. Subscribe to Dark Valley, out now.